Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years, Oak Bay Bikes has two locations and free pickup drop-off service. They are there wherever you need them. Find Oak Bay Bikes online at oakbaybikes.com. You're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. In this series, we feature stories from the greater Victoria area that speak to what really matters to Vancouver Islanders. I arrive at the atrium for my meeting with local architect Frank D'Ambrosio. A security guard greets me with a smile. He extends his hand. My name is Andy Grant, he says. He boasts that he has been guarding the atrium since it opened up in 2010. I was here during the construction, so before, before the building finished, I actually started in here. They had none of the finishing touches on it. It was just concrete, and they were just starting to install the windows. Yeah, I actually was so impressed that I wrote this book. The book, called Discover the Atrium, is hardcover and features pictures of the building. Grant ignores the radio that passes his time while he graciously divulges the highlights of the book. My cohort, who was here at that time too, Beth Rand, did all the pictures for it. But it explains, you know, the construction and what's what. It's very cool. Andy isn't the only one who gets excited when talking about this building. The atrium has been a beloved piece of architecture in the city since it opened in the early 10s, known best for the funky design inside of the building and the open space where Victorians can meet and enjoy lunch or business. The building is also revered for its design, which is geared towards sustainability practices and upkeep, with the rain garden systems, natural building materials, and large windows for natural lighting. The atrium is a leader in the march toward sustainability in all aspects of Victoria life. This type of architecture is just one example of how Victoria works to provide sustainable living for its citizens. Entire businesses are devoted to creating sustainable alternatives for those who wish to live with less of an ecological footprint. A quick search for sustainable practices in Victoria will provide you with information on how to turn your front lawn into a food garden, or what bike routes to take that will get you to work faster than a car in rush hour. Of course, there are options for Victoria citizens if they choose to move toward more sustainable living, but are they buying into it? Are these options really being used by the community, and if so, are there practices that are more favored than others? In this episode, we take a look at sustainability in the Victoria community, what's working and who it's working for. We check out a piece of edible landscaping created for the owners of a sustainable bakery. We'll figure out how the new bike lanes are being received by community members, and we will sit down with one of Victoria's biggest names in sustainable architecture. From CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Stay tuned. First up is a tour of a beautiful garden chock full of edible landscaping, owned by David Grove and put together by Hatchet and Seed Landscaping. David, who owns Royal Bay Bakery near Langford, has spent years attempting to lessen the ecological footprint from his existence and from his bakery. He sources flour by rail, uses local ingredients, and hires individuals within biking distance of his establishment, among other practices. With the help of hatchet and seed owners Solara Goldwyn and Taylor Krawchuk, he planted a garden of edible plants that he can use to feed his family and to use in his baking for work. He gives us a tour of his lovely green space, while Taylor Krawchuk explains the ins and outs of edible landscaping in Royal Bay Garden. See the bee bomb there? Look at all the bee life on that. There's bumblebees, two different types of bumblebees. And over here, right... Here is a honeybee from my hive, that guy there. Mm -hmm. This is a bumblebee, a small yellow bumblebee, and here's a big one that's black with uh, light green stripes sort of thing, front and back. And I saw a little, it's almost like a fly, but I think it's a type of bee, a tiny thing, maybe a mason bee, but smaller even. He's buzzing around down in there somewhere. There's the little guy, see him? Mm -hmm. David Grove, owner of Royal Bay Bakery, has a beautiful garden outside of his home in Machosan. Flowers, trees, and shrubs populate the green space, and a fresh smell fills the air. 
Each plant in this garden was carefully chosen not just for its aesthetic brilliance, but for what food it can provide to David's family and his bakery. We have a third of an acre and half the yard, so the house is there in the garage. We have a, a relaxing area, sort of a foresty area, and then we have the rest of it is, so maybe a quarter acre at the most, uh, is an edible food garden. The whole notion of doing the uh, permaculture installation at the yard sort of started with a young fellow from Machosan who had an idea to build organic vegetable beds for people. He was young and starting out and he didn't want the price to be too high. So as it turned out that summer, it was a bit late to start and we just didn't get our act together. So the following summer, I contacted him and said, are you still making those organic beds? I promise I'll pay you a lot more for it than $120 because that seemed to be a uh, bargain but um and he said well yeah yeah I'm still doing that sort of thing I think I started off too cheap so that business didn't really pan out I built a few but how about if I come around with talk so he did David didn't end up starting his food garden that summer but the next year he got in contact with a small landscaping business in the Victoria area this friend of his Taylor and his wife uh, Solara they have hatchet and seed which is a permaculture or food garden design installation company and so I'm learning so much because as uh, the crew comes to look after the yard they just teach me more and more every 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 time they come it's unbelievable it's very exciting so my name's Taylor I'm the principal here at Hatchet and Seed which is a this is Taylor Krawcheck one of the two owners of Hatchet and Seed Um, we are an edible landscaping and ecological design business so what that means is we take underutilized space in the city and turn it into multi-storied food producing landscapes that look a lot like healthy ecosystems. How long have you been doing that for? We've been at it now for this is the seventh year in business and so when I first started out it was following some training in permaculture design which for those who don't know is kind of a whole systems design approach to habitat in general so looking at food water shelter energy and how we can harmonize all those things and actually live on this planet without creating such a big footprint and in fact having a regenerative footprint is something permaculturalists strive for so rather than uh, being degenerative and always taking from the land can we actually give back to the land and can we have a positive footprint I was introduced to David through a fellow landscaper who used to work with us and they were right ready to landscape their property. They had done some renovations around and built a new garage and so that was kind of where we came in. He hired us to come in and and have a look and do a consultation. We had to come up with a, a larger design for the whole property and talking to them about the sort of things they like to eat and knowing a little bit about the site it was it's very sandy soil so we chose a lot of uh, things that can handle drought um, mediterranean herbs and uh, fig trees and gumi bushes and uh, yeah things that can really handle dry well-drained soils years after breaking ground on their garden the grove family still enjoys the benefits of their garden to this day I joined David and Taylor on a walk through the green space as we picked at what the plants had to offer. So Taylor, does Hatchet and Seed come by here often to do work on the garden or is this project uh, pretty hands-off for you now? Yeah, so we do uh, monthly maintenance, much like a conventional ornamental landscape. You know, you you do want to have some monthly or bi-weekly check-ins. So we, you know, we're mulching and pruning the fruit trees and shaping the fruit trees, you know, little bits of weeding as needed and managing compost and that sort of thing. But it's a lot of times just checking in with David and Gwen, seeing how things are going, talking to them about different ways of processing some of the fruit that we've come to find and, and also vice versa. We learn a lot from, from them <laughs> and how they, uh, you know, turn the, turn the fruit into really amazing products. What uh, portion of the garden would you say goes to the bakery? Actually, the berries add up quick. Well, every year it's a bigger crop of berries as plants mature, grow out, fill out. And with the bees, the pollination is uh, successful. This year, was I would call it a bumper crop year for uh, for berries. The raspberries, maybe not much so much so, but blueberries, elderberries, yasta berries, gumi berries, elderberries, saskatoon berries. We have lots of different berries, and they all produce really well, basically. And... 
that we've stored so we'll probably end up with about 80 pounds of berries from this yard well we can eat quite a bit of that but you can only do make so much jam and give away so many jars so we've been doing that but um, I would say at least uh, 40 50 pounds of that will go to the bakery in some form or another uh, with the herbs, we have way more herbs than we can sell at Baker. We could pat, bundle them up and sell them in bundles if people bought it. It's really a time thing of spending the time to harvest it, wrap it up, package it, however it is you're going to sell. So we could produce we, enough to supply a lot to the bakery, but we, right now, probably 10%. Then of the berries, probably half. The amount of fruit that comes from here that goes to the bakery may increase. We might, you know... If we can transition to some younger people open, uh, taking over the business and that can work successfully, you never know, maybe we'll continue on working with them a little bit and we can be a supplier to them. All right, so let's uh, take a walk through the garden then. So we just came through the gate. Uh, there's a fence put up for the deer. It was the only way in the end that we could completely eliminate the deer problem in the yard. We get rabbits and squirrels and raccoons, but, <laughs> and of course the birds are always around. So you try to produce enough to feed everybody, <laughs> including yourself, and at the same time keep the maintenance to a reasonable level and otherwise just grow things. And it adds, for me, a, a huge element of pleasure to just be in the garden, either reading a book or strolling around, grazing on the leaves and the blossoms you can eat everything that's on this whole half of the yard that you see here i would add to that there's one other side to it which is that you're sharing with the birds and the raccoons and that um and so that's something that takes some getting used to uh, especially earlier early on when you you know you have your you have your fig tree and it's the first year it's producing and there's three figs on it and man oh man you've been eyeing them up for all summer long and then a raccoon comes and eats two of them and that is a reality of growing in the city and that reality gets easier to deal with as there becomes more food you know the next year you're going to have 12 figs and the year after you'll have 30 and it, it does grow exponentially so eventually the birds and the raccoons can really only eat so much so you um you eventually just start getting more of that percentage um and then there's also just netting and and uh and, and, you know, keeping the, the raccoons off. There's different different strategies for, for keeping raccoons off. You can take a wire mesh and put it at the base of trees so that it's uncomfortable for them to climb. So there is a bit of work involved if you want to get 100% of the crop. But yeah, that's, that's a reality of growing your own food in the city. There are other things that want to eat, but there has to be a part of you that feels okay with that <laughs> and just feels like you're sharing with the, the rest of the ecosystem. This little first bed here is a herb, basically an herb bed, other than the grapevine that's growing, to provide shade and to fill out the greenery. We have a bay tree and rosemary, some sage, some ground strawberries that are apparently indigenous and they just spread and make ground cover. Some oregano, fennel is growing up because, because it just won't quit. Some chives. And this little area is really, you can feel how nice and moist and cool it is in the heat of the day I can come and sit down in here or put a chair here and relax and or on my rock chair that they you guys found for me and I can sit and read a book and once you're sitting and reading or just relaxing the birds forget you're there and before you know it you got birds hopping around they're feeding on the seeds that are on the plants and doing their thing Taylor, one thing I notice about the garden as we're walking through it is that not only are there lots of plants growing food, but that this looks well, kind of like a garden or a forest as opposed to a crop. Is that what you aim for when you're planning a landscape? There's a whole host of plants called edimentals that okay. are, you know, sort of edible ornamentals. Um, and so, you know, we try to incorporate as many of those as possible. But also you can do a lot with just the layout of paths and adding curves and... Uh, vertical structures. I mean, it's really about making making a place and, you know, focusing, thinking about garden architecture and how you might have tall trees. And our style of landscaping is really meant to mimic a forest in its architecture and, and, and function. So, yeah, I think that 
for many people, the forest is a beautiful place. We go hiking on the weekends in the forest and we picnic in the forest and it, it is a beautiful place for us to go to. And so I think when we create edible landscapes that mimic that structure and function, I think there's an inherent beauty in that that everybody gets at a really basic level. So David, you seem to be the type that likes to be hands-on with the landscape and learning about permaculture. Why do you continue to work with Hatchet and Seed instead of taking over the garden yourself? What's the benefit in continuing to work with Hatchet and Seed? My thinking is I work as a baker, I make my money there efficiently, and then I take that money and I spend it on a local business that's growing and developing a business that I support wholeheartedly. We've gotten to know the proprietors such that I would now consider them friends of mine, which is a really cool um, sideline. I don't know many grocery store owners, presidents of, I don't think I'm a friend of Galen Weston. You know, I'm not, I, I don't have a personal relationship with my grocer. I'm not sure I ever would or that I'd want to. But here I have this couple, they come, it's very personal. They come into my property, they help me plan and, and work in my own garden, and we talk back and forth, and then you get to know them and you share a lot of interesting uh, beliefs and so on. They have a young uh, child and it's like, what a treat. It's almost like having a grandchild come to your house to visit. So, I mean, what, what kind of value can you put on that? And yet that came from this notion of putting a food garden in my yard. You uh, both mentioned that the garden is great for business and it brings people together and it's a sustainable way to get food. David, what would you say is the greatest part about having a garden like yours? I've come home from the bakery in the morning and I walk through the garden and uh, I, I, I graze, you know, Taylor taught me that. You pick a little something, you eat it, a bloom, uh, a leaf, whatever, you just, you can eat all this and you nibble on it and after about 10-15 minutes you get this wave of really good feeling as the stress drops away and then the uh, energy from this good food comes through your veins it's a remarkable thing it's you know I've been I've gone to a massage and it's a wonderful experience but it's as transformative as that what I experience and it happens almost every time I do it now it's common almost commonplace I kind of like I'm working away at six in the morning I'm going okay that's three hours now let's do another six hours and I go home or three hours, I go home 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and I'm looking forward to it at 6 in the morning. It helps me keep me going, knowing that I'm going to have this nice break. <laughs> it's kind of like my second breakfast, uh, pre-lunch, pre-nap, and then I sleep well. I don't know. To find out more about Hatchet and Seed, visit hatchetnseed.ca. Baby, no, it won't suffice to be naughty, never nice. You say that there's a way for us to be alone to see. That last piece, Royal Bay Garden, was created by members of CFUV's production team. In a moment, we will hear from an individual who spends his life thinking up innovative buildings that aim to keep the environment beautiful. That's next. Stay with us. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes, serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years. Are you curious about e-bikes? Check out the Oak Bay Bikes Demo On Demand program. At Oak Bay Bikes, E is for everyone. For more information, visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore, or online at oakbaybikes.com. From CFUV 101.9 FM, you're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. Welcome back. In this episode, we are taking a look at sustainability practices in Victoria, which parts of sustainability are sticking in the community, and the secret sustainable practices that are flying below the radar. For our next story, I got the chance to interview the mind behind one of Victoria's most beloved downtown office buildings, the Atrium. Frank D'Ambrosio builds private and commercial buildings that can be found in Victoria, Ladysmith, Squamish, Edmonton, Moscow, and in the South China Sea. 
Each of his projects move ahead with sustainability in mind, but they come together to create truly beautiful establishments. We met downtown to talk about his work and to take a tour of the atrium, where he explained the many subtle additions that have made the building one that thrives with sustainable upkeep. Coming up is Behind the Scenes at the Atrium. I ran into a woman here. She was told who I was. I was sitting here or somewhere, and she walked up to me and and she shook my hand and she said, I'm glad to meet you, I want to tell you something. She says, I work in a building across the street and I get my husband to drop me off at the door of this building so I can walk through it in the morning and pretend I work here. She says, it lifts my spirit and at the end of the day I walk back through here and I get a coffee or buy something and then my husband picks me out up front of this building because the building I work in is crap. So, I take a lot of uh, encouragement from stuff like that. So environmentalism has a number of pillars that that hold it up as a, as a way of being. Um, and they, they're not just about um, uh, climate change. Close your eyes for a moment and have a listen to the sounds of the atrium, located at 800 Yates Street downtown. You can hear voices of patrons and employees echo off of curved walls. Light pours in from the skylight seven stories overhead. A handful of trees are embedded in the dark marble floors. The atrium, which serves as an office building, retail space, and a meeting spot for all walks of life, comes from the mind of local architect Frank D'Ambrosio. His buildings are best known for having an urban design and for prioritizing occupant well-being. But for Frank, his love of architecture is driven by the idea of creating sustainable infrastructure. The dictionary definition of sustainable architecture explains that it is a type of architecture that uses design techniques which minimize environmental degradation and make use of low-impact materials and energy sources. Although the idea is very noble, it seems as though it would be extremely difficult to make a building as large as the atrium sustainable. I caught up with Frank in the main floor space of the building to learn more about his vision of sustainability for the downtown core. So Frank, what does sustainable architecture mean to you? Can you give a one-on-one explanation of what your work is? Uh, the most sustainable architecture is a cave. Um, the reality is that word has been overused and co-opted by so many in, in so many different fields that it's almost meaningless. I'd rather talk about robust buildings, buildings that are made to last a long time, to embody the energy that goes in them for as long as possible. That's really where their environmental so-called sustainability might lie. The idea that you build something and you don't have to rebuild it and throw out what you built in short periods of time, like you know the amortization period of a bank loan. So it's set by the use of robust, authentic materials that are sustainably logged if they're wood, uh, sustainably harvested, mined if they're stone. The, and then the second thing is that the building be built to use as little energy as possible. Because building materials, construction, and the operation of buildings is probably responsible for 40% of our contribution to greenhouse gases, for instance, the environmental impact of, of construction is significant. So the actual building of buildings and what they're made of becomes really um, more sustainable or more environmentally benign or at least envir lower environmental footprint or negative impact uh, the longer it lasts. So buildings from the 17th, 18th, 19th century that were built for one purpose get converted over the centuries for myriad of different purposes and reused and reused and rebuilt and, and restored and repaired are way more sustainable than a, a modern slick building made of maybe materials that only last 20 years. 
and then they're, they have to be replaced. And they make, they add to the waste stream and the labor and energy required to replace them. Before we get into that topic more, how did you come to be working and living in Victoria? I was looking for a grad school, and I, a friend of mine told me that UBC, they were doing good things. And I came out, saw the UBC campus, and it's like, do I want to go to school in a garden that's green all year? Yeah. Uh, and so I did my, my graduate uh, work there. And then, you know, I met my wife, and one thing leads to another. Got a job in Vancouver, came to Victoria and for, on work on an inner harbor project. We won a competition with the firm I was with in Vancouver and looked around. My wife's from Nanaimo, but she went to grad school as well. That's where I met her. And um, I thought, boy, this would be a great place. It came to mind when we tried to buy a house in Vancouver back in the 80s, and it was kind of prohibitive. And then I was, com- I was flying over here to work uh, on a project. So we decided to look around, and we bought a, a tiny wreck of a rental, and that's where we still live. It's less of a wreck now that we've fixed it, but but it just would seem like a good place where we could afford to be. The people seemed really nice that we met here and a good place to raise a family. So, yeah, I didn't search out a sustainable place to live. It's just my, my life led to a place that was sustainable for me. And also the big attraction professionally to Victoria was it's still a really young city. The Victoria, I often say, is a city still in its diapers relative to other cities in the rest of the world, even in Canada. In the town I grew up in, in southern Ontario, the, the town I was born in, in Italy, these are old cities, right? cities that at least go back to the 1700s where some you know, stone buildings are still in existence in southern Ontario. But the house I was born in was older than that. In, in Italy. So this place was a place where a lot of construction was going to happen, so they needed architects. So I was able to start my own practice, and that's, that's really what brought me here. What was it that made you interested in sustainability in architecture? Probably around 1972, 73, professor I had at Ryerson Polytechnic in Toronto, where I first started in architecture. He brought to our studio a sensibility about buildings and about urban design that had everything to do with its uh, environmental impact. Back in the day, we did projects like a a net zero building for Ottawa in 1974, a part of a national competition to make a green building. Now this was before the American or the Canadian Green Building Council before the the British version, the Bream program, before anything had reached those points. But it was a time where the seeds were being uh, sown. So you can see how long environmentally sustainable buildings have been thought about. And, And that wasn't the first time. In the 60s, people were experimenting. I remember in high school going to visit a um, uh, a super-insulated uh, house where it needed very little energy and no heating system. It would get its heat from the occupants and from cooking and so on. They would harvest those BTUs and the trick was keeping them in through what was called a trom wall. Now, that technology is ancient, but the desire to use less energy because of its cost and environmental impact has been alive for a long time in our consciousness. It just demonstrates how long it takes things to reach almost the mainstream. So let's talk a bit more about the atrium. You mentioned to me earlier that the leadership in energy and environmental design, also known as LEED, L-E-E-D, has certified your building. What is the LEED system? Also, what does getting a certification mean? That system only exists essentially to give owners and builders of a building and potential tenants of a building, governments and so on, a way to gauge whether a building has is environmentally 
aware, or at least, like I say, more benign than conventional standard methods of construction, for instance. We're proud of this building for, because for its time in the commercial world, it achieved a gold certification. But that really is not where an individual building, um, that's not the best it can do, but it's the best it can do in the context of building economics, the building industry, the kind of um, the tenure, lease rates, uh, just the, the economic realities of constructing a city and increments in the city, which are buildings, it tells us that this one is better than the average, better than the bottom line oriented, slap it up for a short-term gain kind of thing. We're doing better, but this building is still in the minority, and the one we're doing for the same owners, job properties, down the street across from City Hall, that one is hopefully going to be certified as lead platinum, which is the best you can get in that metric. Is it the, the most environmentally sustainable building that you can design? For its size, almost. We can do better, but the incremental increase in the construction cost of such a thing and its operational demands are not the reality of how buildings are owned, operate, built, owned, and operated. So while, yes, it's, it's laudable and so on for being a green building, the atrium, is, you have to put that in the context of the economy and the geopolitical structure that surrounds it. All right, so what about the atrium is sustainable and what isn't? So this building uses less than a building of its size that wasn't built according to the LEED standards. It'll last longer because it's built with robust materials. There's no temporary crap in this building. It's built with for, uh, sustainably sourced lumber, uh, recycled timber. Those are pine beetle killed wood that are used on those trusses. The stone is from Vancouver Island, so the transportation impact uh, has been reduced. There are many, many things. But in this same building, we have parts of it that were manufactured in China and had to be shipped. And that shipping has been, the, the environmental impact of that shipping has been weighed into its certification. That's why we didn't get platinum. Right, so there's a lot of things. Glass isn't made in BC, it has to be shipped. The LEED program actually dictates how it's shipped from how far. If it's shipped by train, there's a certain value. If it's shipped by steamship or oil-fired cargo ships, it gets a lower environmental value and a higher negative impact. So the, the adherence to a, a measuring or a, a metric like the LEED program just basically keeps you honest and keeps you thinking about those things while you're making the decisions because all design is is a series of organized decisions between one thing versus another between the way one thing goes together and another and each one of those incremental decisions causes you to pause and able to filter it through an environmentally charged scrutiny or, or filter I think this is a palette of materials that is of its place there's a kind of uh, architectural categorization that occurs. I guess our practice would be called regionalists, which means we, we look at where a building is and interpret both the natural environment, the cultural and social constructs, the political, the way of life. So all those things play into artistically interpret interpretation. And so where we get our architectural expression from is that, plus knowledge of architectural history, of um, composition, design, in, a, in essence. So to express this building's location in, in Victoria and British Columbia in the 20th and 21st century on the coast, the palette of materials becomes fairly clear. Doesn't mean we don't use steel. Or, or glass, you know, which wasn't produced here 
but it does mean if there are materials or ways of composing materials or formal shapes, for instance, those things work their way into the, the design equation. And what is manifest is our interpretation of that. And so if it recalls that, if it evokes emotion or associations for people, that's the power of architecture. What about the other features of the building? Why is the atrium so renowned in the city? Its benefits aren't just um, environmental. And I point this out because part of sustainability is what's called livability. The idea that a building exists in a place where it makes people's lives better in some way. From the most cosmetic beauty, which is important to to mental state and so on, it's better than ugly, we think. You can value it. But the idea of convenience, the idea of encouraging and being a setting for social patterns that are healthy versus unhealthy. Socialization, awareness of uh, other people, seeing and be seen by different kinds of people at different times of the day, um, mixing of uses. So if I work upstairs, I can get my hair cut here and buy flowers here and, and a sandwich here, and people from surroundings can avail themselves of that. This is an office building, right? But what makes it, in my mind, sustainable from an urban design point of view is those uses on the ground floor. Because upstairs, it's private. You and I, without permission, cannot go. So it's really private property. But meshing into the city in a way that makes it visible, usable, and attractive and and, uh, functional is a responsible and sustainable thing to do in terms of human human habitation. As we wrapped up our conversation, Frank mentioned that the atrium had hidden art throughout. He invited me for a ride up the elevator to witness a picture made out in the floor tile designed by artist Bill Porteous, which could only be seen from up high. Take a look. See those oils, the composition? Mm-hmm. They come from the wave, kind of energy waves, he called them, coming, emanating as counterpoints to the curves of the building. So, and the punctuation of those wooden discs. That's a, a very conscious composite composition. It was, it was drawn in detail by Bill Porteous. We digitized it, because he draws by hand, and then the plan was executed by the tile setter. And that includes the oval that allows these elevators to go down into the basement. It's, it's amazing. You can see those lines everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Those are very purposeful things. As we exited the elevator, Frank ran off after a quick goodbye, and I got some time alone to myself to take in the calming atmosphere in this gem of downtown architecture. I listened to the quiet, yet constant hustle and bustle of pedestrians, and felt the natural sunbeam down onto my face. Frank is right when he says that the atrium provides much more than just environmental sustainability. This gorgeous piece of infrastructure, this friendly social hub, it's much more than meets the eye. For more information on the atrium and Frank D'Ambrosio's other projects, visit www.fdarc.ca. just heard Behind the Scenes at the Atrium, a piece created by myself and members of CFUV's production team. For our last story, we head downtown to have a peek at what has been the bane of local Victorians' existence, according to the internet. The city has been in the works of constructing a network of bike lanes that cyclists can use instead of having to weave through motorists. So far, only one bike lane has been built on Pandora, with one in construction on Fort Street. A slew of upset citizens have voiced their discontent with the bike lanes, stating that the lanes will congest traffic 
and take away parking spaces on the road. We caught up with the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition to discuss the importance of these bike lanes, and we headed down to Fort Street to talk to pedestrians and shop owners to get their opinion on the lanes being constructed. Up next is a city for cycling. Want to take a trip to Victoria's core? You'd be encouraged to do so riding a bicycle. Not only is it better for the environment than riding in a car, it might actually get you there faster thanks to a new set of protected bike lanes. On May 14th of 2017, the ribbon was cut on Pandora Avenue's bike lanes after just under a year of construction. In the fall of the same year, the city broke ground on construction of the city's second lane. The change has brought about excitement and distaste for the project, as opinions on the new bike lanes vary widely. I headed down to Fort Street to speak with citizens about the incoming lanes. This is the first time I'm kind of hearing about it, but I think it's a good idea. Um, more bike lanes, the better, and safer bike lanes, the better. I think it'll get more people biking, which can get more cars off the road. I think it's overall good for the environment. Well, I heard that everybody's using it. Everybody's using it. Um, some, I think, some drivers don't like it. I don't know. It's, I think it's just. I think it's just. I think it's great. Um, it allows for bikers to be safer, and that's perfect. That's great for me. Uh, I'm super excited. Uh, the single best thing you can do to increase like cycling safety is increase cycling infrastructure. It gets more people on the road, and the more cyclists there are, um, the more drivers watch for them. Yeah. Do you uh, drive as well, or do you mainly get around cycling? I definitely do drive. Um, I try to cycle in town. Uh, part of that's just a speed thing, you know, it's just faster. Uh, saves me money on gas and all that. I think the bigger obstacle is there's a cultural shift and an education that needs to happen around how cycling can actually bring cities together. People don't think of Canada as a cycle or a cycle friendly climate all the time. But if we look to Europe and see some of the most cycle friendly cities and we can look to Copenhagen and Amsterdam as two of the most cycle-friendly cities. There are cities that are four-season with winters, where it snows, temperatures do drop and get cold, and they're still phenomenal places to cycle. So I think we need to do a bit of an education around the fact that we can cycle all year round, and a bit of a, a culture shift towards the idea that cycling is a great way to get around, and that you can get to work and go out to have fun and use cycling as your means of transportation. So I think the more we promote it as a real alternative form of transportation, and also the more we build it up in terms of infrastructure so it's safe for people to cycle and they don't feel that fear of biking alongside cars, I think we'll see that shift towards more and more cycling. Among those who are very excited to see the bike lanes constructed, the Greater Victoria Cycling Coalition has been championing the project from its early days. Edward Pullman, president of the coalition, spoke to CFUV to dispel some myths of the lanes and to share how the GVCC is involved in the construction. I guess if you had an ideal master plan for the city of what you would like to see done, do you feel that what's being done on Fort Street should be implemented everywhere? What would the, the ideal bike cycling network look like? Yeah, like the bike cycling utopia. So it would be a combination of ultimately you want to have a complete network of cycling facilities and infrastructure that is comfortable for anywhere from aged 8 to 80 to use comfortably. So, and what that looks like is going to be different depending on the context, depending on the road that we're talking about essentially. The question is how do we develop infrastructure on streets? What do we do on the major on major and minor streets? to create cycling conditions that are favorable to everybody. And that's the real question. So on busier roads like the downtown core or on busier arterial streets, certainly we need to see some form of physical separation between vehicles and, um, and bikes. What we really need to get away from is what's existed in the past 50, 60 years in North America, and that's the concept of mixing different modes of traffic because as we can see that's not very effective. Um, any area where 
we have mixing modes of traffic, we don't have very high ridership because the vast majority of the cycling population is traffic intolerant. They don't want to ride with traffic, they don't feel comfortable riding with traffic, they don't feel safe riding with traffic. Safety is consistently identified as the biggest barrier to more people riding bikes more often. So back to your original question, what does an ideal bike network look like? It looks like a network where major roads have separated cycling facilities and minor roads have traffic calmed roads so that there's fewer cars and those cars are going slower on those roads where you do have to mix and on, on those busier roads like downtown roads or arterial roads you have some form of physical separation whether that's a concrete barrier or bollards or something to that effect something that separates bikes from other vehicle traffic you know awareness and education can only really get you so far Certainly when we install new infrastructure, we need to have a level of education about how to use it. And that's some of the challenges we've seen around Pandora, but you know that learning curve is relatively easy to get over and delivering that hard infrastructure really delivers results for getting more people riding. Did you have any thoughts about the, uh, the bike lanes that are coming in on uh, Fort Street? I was uh, talking to my friend who lives on Pandora, just like overlooking uh, downtown Pandora. And she said they put so much money into it and they shortened the streets and the traffic and then it seems like nobody actually uses them. So it seems like they've pretty much just made a bottleneck for traffic, which just means that there's traffic longer in the mornings and it means for commuters it takes a longer time for them to get to work. And there's not enough traffic on the bike lane, which was just put in, so they just kind of sell themselves short on it. First of all, there's no more right turn off the road for cars on a red, which is the law. And most people don't realize that there's giant signs that says no more turn on red, no more right turn. Well, I totally made that turn. I and uh, so that's super dangerous because most people just don't have a, any clue. There should be like a barrier or something maybe, or give it time to adjust, sacrifice a couple bikers, bikes. And uh, the other thing, I think it just doesn't make sense that uh, it's a one way of car traffic going up and down all these streets, they're all one ways. And then the bike lane is two ways. I think it would be smarter if this was a dedicated that way bike lane, going with the traffic. I mean, this is what, Pandora? So going, going down, and then Johnson could be the other bike lane going up. So it wouldn't be so messy. That's what I think about it. I've thought about it a lot. I'm a driver and a biker, so. One group who has voiced their anguish over the construction of the bike lanes is the shop owners of Fort Street. Mayor Lisa Helps promised to issue an apology to the Downtown Victoria Business Association and those businesses on Fort Street, saying, quote, The corridor has been part of the network since early 2014, but that's no excuse for when we're actually going to go out and build to not just go and knock on doors, which we did, and leave flyers, which we did, but to take into consideration how their business operates and how we can build the bike corridor to make sure it's enhancing and not inhibiting their businesses. End quote. We spoke to Russell Books for their opinion on the matter as a business on Fort Street. We're, I mean, a bit tentative about the actual construction process just because with any construction, it kind of cuts off access to, to different areas. And we're, you know, a little bit worried about how many people will be able to get to the store. But in the long run, we're pretty excited about the bike lanes. Um, we've, we've been, had great success with the parklet, which is just kind of down the street here with a whole bunch of people on Ford Street, kind of enjoying the street. And uh, from what we've seen on, the, on Pandora with what happened with the bike lanes there, it's a really kind of nice atmosphere now that the bike lanes are in. So we're hoping that the same thing happens here on Ford Street, which I, I think it probably will. I mean, parking has always kind of been a bit of an issue downtown. Uh, I mean, the parking spaces out front, there really aren't that many to begin with. Uh, I mean, we have the parkade just behind us here. So there's always that kind of parking as an option. And a lot of the people we get downtown, I mean, we do get a decent amount of people come drive downtown, but a lot of them are just people who've taken the bus or people kind of walking around town, taking bikes, all sorts of things. So we get enough of a mix of people that, you know, the parking spaces aren't, aren't a huge worry for us. Again, here's Edward Pullman. 
And the goal really is to be able to make it so that somebody has the ability to be able to access safe cycling infrastructure within about, I believe they're saying about 400 meters of their home. Really, we know when we're talking about building bike lanes, we're not talking about getting everybody on their bikes to ride their bikes. Like that's just silly. Uh, there are plenty of people that need to use their cars for very legitimate reasons. What we need to have a, a rational and, and wholesome conversation about is what can we do to encourage people to bike more? Not that they bike exclusively, but for that short trip they're taking to the grocery store of two kilometers or the three or four kilometer trip they're taking to work or to the rec center how can we get more people in those situations to ride their bikes and and as i already said vast majority of um, the people in this region live within the core communities live within a short distance of most of the trips that they're taking those are the people that are primed to start riding bikes more often you know for somebody who lives out in langford by all means they're not going to be as likely to commute into downtown victoria to work or to shop or what have you but frankly that's why we need to get more people in the downtown core and in the surrounding area biking more so that we have more road space for those people that actually need to drive that's what we need to have a conversation around the conversation around putting more bike lanes in isn't social engineering it's not the idea that we're going to have everybody suddenly start riding a bike we're talking about reclaiming relatively small amounts of road space so that people who want to bike and would like to bike more have that option that was a city for cycling a piece created by members of cfuv's production team If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more stories like these, head over to cfuvpodcasts.com or soundcloud.com cfuv. Our intro is composed and performed by Poddington Bear. The outro for this episode is Gender, written and composed by Painted Fruit. Other music in this episode was performed by Elan Noon and Monk, both great musicians from this city. Our producers for this episode, in no particular order, are myself, Miles Sauer, and Max Collins. This program is created by CFUV's podcasting production team. If you want to be a part of creating high-quality spoken word programming, head to cfuv.ca to find out more. Full Circle is made possible with the generous support from Oak Bay Bicycles and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Thanks for listening. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Proudly serving the cyclists among UVic students and faculty since 1963. Visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore or online at oakbaybikes.com.